So today is Labor Day, and we're going to talk about work. (laughs) And particularly because this is a church and this is a worship service, we are going to talk about how uh, the followers of Jesus should should relate to work. What what about work, not just as kind of economic uh, units, you know, but as followers of Jesus? How should we relate to work? And I think because uh, we're talking about a relationship, um, like with so many other relationships, the answer is, well, that's complicated. So um, what I want to do is uh, talk about the complications of how uh, the followers of Jesus relate to work. Um, in my own case, uh, you, you know the saying, um, I love hard work. I could watch it for hours. <laughs> in my case, that's actually true. Um, I used to watch a show called uh, Dirty Jobs. I don't know. Just out of curiosity, how many of you remember the, the old TV show, Dirty Jobs with Micro? Okay, a lot of hands. All right. So more than most of my pop culture references. I really used to like that show. Um, so uh, uh, Micro would, would go visit kind of the really dirty, uh, um, ugly, hot, sweaty type jobs that there are out there. And he would, he would learn how to do them at least well enough to film an episode. And uh, then he would, he would uh, uh, that would be broadcast for you. And if you haven't seen the show, I, I suppose you can find it on, you know, one of the channels out there. But if you haven't seen the show, you, you should at least listen to his TED talk. He gave a TED talk where he kind of summarized, it was probably 200, um, episodes that they filmed. And he summarized what did he learn making 200 episodes of, of, um, Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. And, uh, in it, he talks about how, uh, we have all been, um, at least for the last couple of generations, We've been sold a bill of goods, and he talked about how in his um, in his guidance counselor's office at, at in a high school there was a sign on the wall that said "Work smarter, not harder," and it had some poor schlub who was like ba- breaking his back, you know, uh, with a shovel uh, doing doing hard work, and instead it proposed that wouldn't it be great to have an office job, you know, where you've got air conditioning and and you know everything's so easy for you, and and he said. That that is a, that is a, a, a false um, a false teaching he would he would say and um, and uh, I don't know what your perspective is on that on mine um, my own feeling is I'm not sure if you can ever get away from from working harder I uh, I didn't have a real job per se not like a payroll job all the way through high school I worked in um, I did my I was my own boss I did lawn mowing and I did as little as my budget uh, necessitated because I don't like work. And so I would do a little bit of lawn mowing whenever I needed money, and that was about it. Um, but there was one summer where I actually got a job job, and it was working in my brother's gas station, and I hated that job. It was a hot little glass box in the New Mexico sun, and uh, there were it was just a boring job punctuated by having to actually work, and I just didn't like, clean the bathroom and things like that. So I, I didn't like that job, and I kind of had my own little epiphany, my own little work smarter, not harder job, uh, uh, epiphany there that summer. And so I started actually thinking about how I could be a better student. At the end of ninth grade, my, my GPA was uh, under 2.0. I had, uh, what, two Ds and four Cs. And that job, I have to credit that gas station um, with the motivation to actually begin working. And so I did end up in college. I had to get some, some work, work study there, though. And so I got jobs in college, and one of them was in the geochem lab. And I spent um, a very hot New Mexico fall day um, busting up rocks and then boiling them in vats of acid. And I thought to myself, this is really not actually a big improvement over sitting in the gas station. So, so I don't know if you can ever actually get away from working, um, working harder. You may be able to work smarter, but you may still be working harder. And my guess is you've got stories of your own. If you've had a job 
Um, if you've watched people who have had jobs, then you understand that there is something about work um, that sometimes it's fulfilling, sometimes it's not as fulfilling, sometimes it's enjoyable, sometimes it's not as enjoyable. Um, our relationship with work is complicated. And if yours isn't complicated yet, just wait, because it probably will be. I'm going to give, some, give you some stats. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average time that people spend in a job is 4.2 years. I'm sorry, that's the median. It means half of, half of all the people have jobs shorter than that, and half of the people have jobs longer than that. So that's not a long time. In the course of a career, what does that mean in terms of how many jobs you're going to hold? They did a survey of baby boomers, because they're old enough now that you can actually make some, some judgments, and they found out that between the year of eight, 18 and, 15, and 50, baby boomers averaged 12.1 uh, jobs. So that's 12 jobs in 32 years. So uh, that's more than tw- uh, that's more than uh, that's less than four years per job. So um, the the online site LinkedIn, it's a job networking site. Uh, they they did a survey of their uh, customers and they found out that among millennials, uh, millennials um, had uh, four jobs in the first decade in the workplace, whereas Gen Xers only had two. So the trend seems to be accelerating. In fact. I would say that the workplace in general has been getting more complicated ever since people came in off the farm. You can imagine some of the ways that the workplace has changed. Um, obviously, you know, way back in the day when they, when they added steam engines and things like that. But then the workforce composition changed. We added, uh, women to the workforce in greater, um, greater, uh, numbers than had been the case before. And also, uh, automation. We, we got robots and things like that. Um, computers became a part of the workforce. I had a great conversation with a guy um, in Indianapolis years ago. Uh, he used to work for, he was an accountant for a brewery, a major national brand. And he was telling me that every 90 days, they, you know, they'd have a quarterly closing and they would hire a fleet of temps to come in and work calculators to do the, to do the math because computers hadn't been invented yet. And so there's all these people with the old crank type calculators. And so they would just show up and they had, they had space for them and they'd, punch all the numbers. He said it took like 45 days to get the, the quarterly numbers done. So so, um, so uh, automation and computers have certainly changed the workforce, um, making it more and more complicated. You have to learn new skills all the time as you go to those jobs for just four years. So you have to learn a whole new set of things a lot quicker than we used to. And then on top of that, there's what economists call the gig economy. Um, 57 million Americans work in the gig economy. That means things like Uber and Fiverr, where you're kind of your own boss. You're like me back in the lawn mowing days. You did as much work or as little work as you want. Um, and, and there's 57 million people who have part-time job where they're kind of their own boss or maybe they're, they're working for Uber, however you want to slice that. Um, but so people talk about um, the gig economy. So the workplace is more complicated than it has ever been, and it's probably going to keep getting more complicated than it ever has been. So uh, that's why our relationship to work is complicated, both because the nature of the work itself, we may enjoy it, we may not like it, um, it may be fulfilling, it may be unfulfilling, and then on top of that, it's constantly changing. So what does our faith teach us about work? So I want to talk about um, what our faith teaches us. The first thing it teaches us is that work is good. Um, if you remember the, the uh, lesson where uh, the Lord God put the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, this is in Eden. This is before the first sin. This is in the state of innocence. God had an intention for us that we would be people who worked. And um, what, what I find amusing all the time 
is finding out the way science is catching up with this. That uh, how many people have been to the doctor and said, you know, you're too sedentary. The doctor says you're too sedentary. You need to exercise more. And increasingly, they're even saying you need to sweat. That it's actually good for you to kind of uh, to to work your body to the point where you actually sweat. So the things we naturally avoid, the things we don't like doing, are exactly the things that now we're finding out we are made to do. So work is good. There's nothing wrong with work, um, except what's except what's happened since chapter three of Genesis. Work has become difficult um, to whatever extent you find it difficult, but it is not intrinsically bad. So work is. Work is good. The other thing that our faith teaches us is that all work is good. Back in the Middle Ages, the church had had kind of come up with a doctrine or a set of doctrines that said that some work was better than other work. That my job, standing up here in front and teaching the Bible to people, or if you were you know in a if you were a monk in a monastery making cheese or something like that, that that was good work. That that was holy work because you were a holier person, and that kind of rubbed off on your work. And so in the Middle Ages, there was this idea that there was better work than others. And one of the things the Protestant Reformation um, uh, was was uh, determined to stress is that that's not biblical, that according to the Bible, all work is equally good. If it's honest work at all, if it's, a, if it's you know, robbing banks is bad work. But, but if it's honest work, it's good work. Um, and they pointed to passages like the one we heard from Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a secular man. He was the governor of Israel under the Babylonians, um, or I guess the um, the Persians. Uh, he was he was a governor um, who came to Israel and oversaw work projects. He he saw a project where the where the wall was rebuilt around Israel. There was actually a religious leader, Ezra, but he was not that religious leader. And uh, the, the reformers looked at passages like that and they said they said uh, work is good. Whatever work. God puts you to, you can do that in a way that is good. So work is good. All work is good. One of the reformers um, was a man named um, John Calvin, and he said this. He said, no task will be so sordid and base, provided you obey your calling in it, that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. So think about that the next time your, your boss you know, dumps some bad news on you, that no work however sorted and base, cannot be seen as precious in God's sight. So uh, work is good and all work is good. And that theme is carried on in our reading from uh, Colossians 3. Um, whenever whenever we read a passage that includes slavery, I always kind of want to have a trigger warning. Um, uh, I, I listened to um, a podcast by Sam Harris. Um, he's one of the prominent celebrity atheists. And I know that slavery is a very triggering issue for him. He says that the church... Uh, that, that religious behavior in general um, and the behavior of the Christian church over the last two millennia has been uh, largely responsible for the promulgation of slavery up until the time of the 1800s. And so I know that slavery is a complicated issue, and I'm hoping we can address that this fall. I'm going to be doing a sermon series. This is kind of a, a plug for an upcoming sermon series. Later this fall, I'm going to have a sermon series called Hard Questions, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to... to um, to vote on some of the questions that I've got in mind, which ones you'd like to see as part of that. So we'll be talking about slavery, I hope, this fall. But um, but I would just say, for purposes of today, I would just say um, uh, whatever whatever you think about your job, being a slave is probably worse. 
Okay, you may love, you may love your job, in which case being a slave is, is, is worse. But even if you hate your job, you have more options because you can quit. Now I know sometimes there are, there are circumstances in our life where we say, I can't quit. You know, my, my benefits are here, my health insurance, I can't walk away from my health insurance. That, that there are complications where we feel as if our options are constrained, but however constrained your options may be, you probably, I would say, you, you definitely have more options than a slave. A slave has no options by definition. They do whatever the master tells them to do. And that's what Paul uh, speaks to in our um, lesson here from uh, Colossians 3. So um, in this in this passage, um, just to give us some context, um, Paul, Paul begins the chapter we're looking at by saying this. He says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. He says, he says, you have already been rescued by God and placed in the kingdom of his son, Jesus, that that has already happened. And he says, now you just have to act like you believe it. He says, it's a true thing. It's not because of anything you did. It's because of what Christ did. You've been rescued. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven to start acting like you're part of God's kingdom. So that's the big idea that's at work in Colossians. And he says, okay, how does that actually play out? And so he talks about how that plays out in the ordinary relationships of the household. So he talks about, he talks about husbands and wives, parents and children. And then he talks about slaves and masters. And so what does he say there in the passage we were looking at? So he says to slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. In everything you do. So, maybe that's one of the passages that Sam Harris has in mind when he says the church is complicit in maintaining this evil institution. But I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. Paul is, is telling them that you have a choice. And we know that because he says, he says right after that, he says, not only when they're watching you. See, 2000 years ago, people were still people. And, you know, if you were a slave and you didn't like your boss and he told you to do something, you'd probably only work when he was watching you. And then as soon as you got around the corner, you'd slow down, you'd kind of take a little side trip, you'd, you'd, you know, steal from the kitchen, you know, whatever it was you did, because you didn't owe this guy anything. You were a slave. And as soon as he, as soon as he quit watching you, you'd do what you, whatever you could get away with. So Paul is saying, even a slave has that freedom the decision about how they're going to respond to the situation that they're in. They get that freedom. And so he says, he says, behave your, uh, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. And then he says this. He says, remember, the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, that the master you're serving is Christ. He, one of the things that we see throughout the scriptures is the idea of stewardship. The idea that everything you have is a gift from God and that there will be an accounting someday. God will say, what did you do with the things I gave you? And he's saying here to slaves is you don't have control over any other area of stewardship. That I can't ask you what you did with your money because you don't have any money. I can't ask what you did with your time because your time is not your own. You have nothing to be a steward over except this one thing. You have a decision about how you're going to behave. And he promises this. He says, even if you're a slave, even if your circumstances are so constraining, you have no choice about what you do with your, your, your time or your effort. He says, even then, God will accept what you do as if he had asked it, no matter how sordid and base, to use the words of John Calvin, no matter how degrading or horrible 
the work that your master assigns, Jesus will treat it as if he had asked you to do it. He will see it in that light. It will become a part of your stewardship. So he says, you have freedom in one area only. You have the freedom to decide how it is that you will behave in those circumstances. After World War II, there was a concentration camp survivor, a psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl, who said essentially the same thing. He said he could tell in, in the concentration camps who was going to survive and who was not because the ones who had a purpose in their lives were the ones who survived, that it gave them meaning and it enabled them to make the decision. That he said no matter how bad your circumstances are, you have the, you have the freedom in any circumstances to decide how am I going to respond to this. It's the same idea. You, no matter how, how terrible your circumstances may be, you have the freedom to decide how to behave in those circumstances. So, he, he concludes this passage and says to the masters, be fair to your slaves. He says, remember, you also have a master in heaven. And um, that is part of the general thinking of the Judeo-Christian uh, movement, which is that um, God is a God of liberation, that God sees what masters do. Um, famously in the Exodus event where God led the people out of Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, into freedom in the promised land. Um, and that brings us to the last point. Work isn't everything. In, in the, the Exodus event, we see that God um, has freed the people of, of uh, Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And he then gives them a, a law code to live by now that they have um, their freedom. And he says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, and you would expect that. Your sons and daughters, well, maybe. And your male and female servants, even your slaves, must be given time off. Your livestock, any foreigners. Foreigners have no support network. There's no, there's no kinfolk. There's no relationships that they can call on. Everybody in the land is given rest because work is not everything. So, work is good. All work is good. But work isn't everything. Chances are, something more important than work is sitting next to you. Our relationship with work is complicated. But it's not that complicated. If you can remember those things, work is good, all work is good, but work isn't everything. And you have the gist of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for the opportunity to work. We, we learn that, that because of, because of the thing that is broken in us, the thing that, that we call the fall, the thing we call the first sin, a work has lost, um, its luster. And so often work can be drudgery and toil. But it is good. And you made us to be creatures who work. So Lord, help us to have that mindset. Help us to, like those slaves that Paul addressed in Colossae, to remember that we are not part of the earth anymore. We have been transferred into the kingdom of your Son, and that if we put our sights on heavenly things, that even our work can be good work. Lord, help us to realize that all work is good, that, that work is good, and all work is good, and to remember that even so, work is not everything. We pray it through Christ our Lord.
Amen.